morning, church. It's good to have you this morning. Those of you who remember to change your clocks, or those of you who have smartphones that change automatically like me, Let's pray. Lord in heaven, even though We don't necessarily wish for hardship and trial and struggle. We we know the promise of your word tells us that it is not empty and purposeless, but it teaches and builds and strengthens us. So Lord, we thank you for times that really demand that we cast ourselves upon you and rely on you, rely on your strength, rely on your grace to get us through. Lord, we know that we are in ourselves not not worthy and yet you still love us and care for us Lord not only do you love and care for us but you've taken upon yourself hurt and pain so that we might be yours Lord, strengthen us, encourage us, build us up as only you can. Give us the strength to cast ourselves upon you, knowing and trusting in your promises. It's in Jesus' name. So like I said, it's really good to have you this morning. Uh, We're going to continue through uh, our series, The Redemption Story. Um, The purpose of our series, we're going to go now until Easter, and then actually six additional weeks after Easter, so seven total weeks including Easter's for the Easter season. Right now we're in the Lent season, then we'll be in the Easter season. It's 13 total weeks. Um, And through these three months, we're going to travel... Through the Bible. So we started last week, Genesis chapter 3, and by three months from now, we'll be in Revelation. Um, And what we're doing as we travel through this is we're looking at how the Bible shows us or or reveals to us, develops, maybe is a good way to put it, the, the story of redemption. God's redemptive work in the earth. Today, 
we're not moving very far forward from Genesis 3. Actually, we'll predominantly be in Genesis chapter 6. Uh, but in order to understand what happened in, happens in Genesis 6, we have to kind of look at 4, 5, and 6. 3, 4, 5, and 6 even. You might ask the question, well, how are we going to get through the whole Bible if we're spending so much time in Genesis? Because actually next week we'll still be in Genesis. Um, and, and, and I'll say it's kind of like watching a child grow up. It's kind of like watching the development of a child where um, if any of you have children and most, most, pe- most of the people in this room, lots of people in this room, maybe that's how I should say it, have children and, and they're older than the age of, say, one or two. Anybody who has children who kind of get into those, you know, five, six, seven, eight-year-old years, which is where my children are, knows that there are kind of a lot of things that happen in years one and two that are really, really big, really important, and really, really impactful into the rest of your life. And while there's still stuff happening, you know, when you're three or when you're five or when you're eight or when you're ten or whatever, it's not quite as maybe dramatic, right? When you're when you're one, you eat solid food for the first time, which really does then change the way you're going to live the rest of your life. If you never got to the point where you could eat solid food, that's going to drastically alter how you're going to live your life. Or if, you know, Jeremiah, he's, he's one now, he's 13 months old now. He's just about ready to walk, and, and, and so he's getting around, he's crawling around, and he pushes things around, he's walking, but when he starts to make those steps, it's a, a, a humongous leap forward in his his development and it happens in a very short amount of time. Whereas when you kind of get like when you least started going to school, that's a big change. But then school is a hundred years of your life. At least that's how it's been for me. I mean, so there's these really big, important things that happen that are fundamental or foundational is the word I want to use. Foundational in how we're going to then live our lives. The same thing is true with the story of redemption. It's one of the reasons why Genesis is my favorite book of the Bible. I've just kind of gotten rid of one of my favorite, but is my favorite book of the Bible. Is that there is so much going on in Genesis from in every aspect of, of, of looking at the book. So much going on theologically, literarily, entertainment, whatever, however you want to say it. There's so much going on. And so, and so we're going to be in Genesis again this morning. Last week, like I said, we were in Genesis chapter 3. We saw the, the fall of man. We call it the, the fall of man because we know that the story is not just about Adam and Eve, the people, but it's about what they represent. We are all like Adam and Eve. We reach out and eat from the same tree, from the knowledge of good and evil. We make the same sin. We try to be God just like Adam and Eve. Just we are representative in this, represented in this story. But what I want to look at maybe today is how we go from Genesis 3 to Genesis 6. What happens in Genesis 3, 4, 5, and 6? My maybe working hypothesis, and I, I think there's some evidence to this, what, how I understand verse chapters 3, 4, 5, and 6 is that this is a story of how sin enters the world and then how it leeches and extends itself into every single area of life 
when unchecked by God. There's something really interesting that happens in chapters 3 to 6 that never again happens in the Bible. God does not do anything to sin other than man dies at some point. God does not, God does not interject himself. He doesn't change anything. He doesn't send his son, not yet. And that's a different kind of a different conversation about, about what Jesus is doing for the people in Genesis chapters 1 to 6. But there's no, there's no attack plan from God. And I think one of the things that we see as we look at Genesis 3 to 6 in that light is just how effective sin really is. Sin is an infection in human history. And God is the only antibiotic. He's the only thing that counters sin. We as humans, we, we are often much more confident in ourselves than we ought to be. I'm, I'm a good person, right? Probably most of, the peop- most of us in this room would admit this, say this. And probably for most of us, if we would line up the good things that we do in life, Maybe ignore the neutral things, the things that aren't really good or bad. Ignore the neutral things and then compare them to the bad things that we do in our life. I'm going to guess, probably one to one, we probably do more good things. You know, I follow the speed limit sometimes. All the time. I tell the truth sometimes. Oh. Right, so we, we, we often we do good things, but but right that's in, in 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 a lot of ways reason why I follow the speed limit is because there's societal expectations, societal norms, and, and good has been interjected into the system that I have found myself in, and so by association I sort of have good in me, right? And, and if we're going to, so we look at the law and we say, okay, the, the law in America, right? Not the law in the Old Testament. The law in America has a lot of its foundations in the law from the Old Testament. And so maybe we say, I, I don't speed or I, you know, I don't steal or whatever because the law in America, but the law in America is a direct descendant from the law that God gives and God is giving. And so God is interjected. So we can really, in a lot of ways, trace any good that happens in this world back God, and we should. Genesis 3 to 6 shows us really what happens when there isn't that. I think so that we can look at it and where we can hear God say, you can't do it without me. So Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, they eat the fruit, and we see multiple different outcomes, multiple different punishments, multiple different ramifications from their sin, right? From the serpent is cursed to go around his belly to pain in childbearing to pain in, in tilling the ground to separation from God and being cast out of the garden. Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 2 are walking with God, with 
God in the cool of the day in the Garden of Eden. Just to give you a little spoiler at what is to come, when we get to Revelation, that's where we're going. We're going back to the Garden of Eden, being in communion with God in, in, in unfiltered, personal, intimate, face-to-face communion with God. Exciting. But their sin drives them away. God says you can't, they, they're going to continue to eat from the tree of life, and so we have to we have to send them out. We have to send them out. So that one of the one of the, the, the outcomes of sin is that there's separation between God and man. There's a, a, a severing, a breaking of our perfect relationship with God. Then we get to Genesis 4. In Genesis 4, Adam and Eve are in, are cast out of the Garden of Eden, and they start to have children. So they bear Cain and then Abel. And many of us have heard the story of Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel are bringing sacrifices to the Lord. We're not told why they're bringing sacrifices to the Lord, just they're bringing sacrifices to the Lord. Cain, he's a a farmer, and so he's growing some crops. He brings those. And Abel, he's he's a a shepherd, so he brings brings the firstborn of his flock and the fat portion, we're told, the good stuff. And it says that God has, has regard for Abel's sacrifice and doesn't regard Cain's sacrifice, and we're not going to actually break that part down because there's too much to get into that. But Cain, he looks at his brother Abel's, his brother Abel's received sacrifice, and he's like, eh, I don't like that. And in a jealous rage, he kills his brother. Sin has entered in. We eat a fruit. We separate ourselves from God. Sin continues to fester, continues to grow, and now we have a severing of the relationship between brothers. Kindred, maybe. If you continue on in Genesis chapter 4, we get a short little genealogy uh, from Cain. Cain's really worried about, about revenge because he's killed his brother. And God says, no, if anybody takes revenge on you, it kills you in revenge, uh, their punishment will be sevenfold. And then, and then we get this genealogy, Enoch, and so on and so forth, down to Lamech told that Lamech has two wives. And then verse 23, it says, Ada and Zillah, which are his wife's names, hear my voice. He's speaking to them. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for, for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. If you study the Hebrew uh, behind this little poem, we kind of lose a little bit into the English. Actually, more than likely what's being said is that a young child, not a young person, not a, you know, not a 20-something, but a youngster, hits Lamech, and then he kills him for it. It's much more severe than, than I think we get in, in English. And actually, we could almost make the case that the reason why Lamech is talking to Ada and Zilla is that it's not just some random child, but it's potentially one of their children, which would be one of his children. And this is then why he gives this veiled threat. Hey, somebody was going to take revenge on Cain. That was going to be sevenfold punishment. But if, if you take revenge on me, it's going to be 77-fold. He takes what God said about justice... And he goes, no, it's going to be more, because I'm more important. Sin unchecked separates us from God. 
separates us from brother, separates us from at least family. It's this growing and this festering, this pus-filled boil of unchecked infection. Then Genesis chapter 5 throws us a little curveball, gives us this genealogy, a teledot, if you remember our series in Genesis. Basically, this serves to show us that, that, that many people have, have been born into the earth. And maybe we think by the time we get to the end, because we get to Noah, Noah's the last of this genealogy, the last in the line of actually Shem, Ham, and Japheth. But we get to these, these characters and we go, well, here's a good guy, because we've heard the stories before. Here's a good guy. But that's not the case. You know, so, sometimes we think that sin, yes, it's bad, and, and we're all sinners. Yeah, well, I'll admit that. But sin, sin is, is by its nature, it's individual. Right? I think of the sins that are in my life, and very often the way I think about my sins are the moments of my sins. Moments, right? The times when I have sinned. The times when I have fallen short. What the Bible teaches us, especially in Genesis, the first couple chapters of Genesis here, is that sin is not individual, it's perpetual. It grows. If not stopped, it will infect every area of life. And this is why I think God says in the law that the sins of a father will be extended out or, or perpetuated out to the seventh generation. It's not because God is cursing the seventh generation from the sin, but because there's a reality that, that sin untampered by God will be passed from one child to the next. So sin enters in and as we eat the fruit. Soon we have murder. Soon we have maybe more murder. And, and then we get to Genesis 6. If you know me at all, you know that I, I have a particular favorite verse, probably not the best favorite verse that a person should have. But the verse that I quote often, and I quote it often because it's so foundational to how we need to understand really everything in the Bible. We get to Genesis chapter 6. Uh, verse 5, and now is when I have verses up here. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, reads this. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention, the thoughts of his heart, was only evil continually. Sin doesn't stand still. Now, sometimes if you grew up in the church, maybe you've heard pastors or youth, youth pastors or somebody you know, say at some point, if you're not moving forward, you're moving backward. I think one of the reasons why we say that is because if we're standing still, we're not actually standing still because there's a, there's a conveyor belt that is sin driving us away from the Lord. 
Because sin doesn't stand still. It grows, it grows, it grows. It's habit. It's And when God does not intercede, when God does not do something, and we're going to see the something that he is going to do, and it's spectacular. When God doesn't do anything, we don't just get better, we get worse. The lie that is currently being given to the world today by, by Americans, westernized people who think that, is that, is that we're, we're all basically good and we're all basically getting better. Because we think having more stuff means that we're better people. It's a total lie. It's actually so shocking of a lie that it's, it's really kind of surprising that we as Christians don't see it more clearly. Have we gotten to the point where we think that we're just, we're good? And we're getting better. And we're not. We can't. Not by ourselves, at least. If you want one more evidence, I, I always I say this, and maybe, maybe people think that I don't like my children. I love my children. I think the easiest thing to point to, to show this fallen nature, is you don't have to teach children to sin to teach my child to be selfish. I don't have to teach my child. You don't have to teach anybody to be selfish. It's what we're doing when we're reaching out and taking the fruit. We're being selfish. And this corrupts every area of our lives and, and, it, and, it, and, it, and it infests and it grows and it festers and it's just... It's, But the story doesn't end in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. Does it? This is not human history. This is human origin, maybe. We go on verse 6. Look at, look at verse 6. Look at verse 6 and 7. And I want you, I want you, I want you to hear these words. It says, And the Lord, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. The Lord regretted that they made man on the earth, and it, and it grieved him to his heart. And so the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven, for I am sorry that I have created them. There's two mistakes that I think we make when we read this, two two. Interpretive, interpretive mistakes. The first one is that we think that because of the language of these two verses, God didn't know that this was going to happen. I don't think that that's true. I think the rest of the Bible tells us that God very much knew that you, even many thousands of years later, are a sinner and we're going to be a sinner. I can have regret even though I knew the outcome already, right? If I took Declan, who's three, and put him in a room with a table and a bunch of markers, and I said, don't color on anything but the paper. And I left him for 10 minutes. 
five minutes. Say ten. Ten minutes. And I come back in. I think Declan's a fairly good kid. He's not, he's not, you know, he's not the Antichrist. Sounds horrible. I'm being really mean to my kids today. But I come back in the room. There's, it's, there's almost no, there's almost no possible chance that, that that something has not been colored on other than the paper. Right? It's, it's inevitable. Now you could blame me for that foolish decision of leave, leaving him in the room all you want. That's not the point of what I'm trying to say. Maybe the analogy breaks down there, but but I still would have regretted that. Right? Going back in the room. We send our kids up. Our, our, our upstairs is mostly a big open room. It's where we have all our toys. And, and most of the time we're like, kids, go upstairs and play. When we go upstairs, we, we look at the room and we go, it's shocking how messy it is. But we knew it was going to be a mess. So maybe we regret sending our kids up there. But it's not. It's, this passage is not actually talking about life as an experiment. It's talking about how God feels about sinfulness. It's talking about how God feels about sinfulness. What it, we think that God just cannot wait to punish us. Like he started this, he's like, I can't, I, I am going to enjoy getting all these creations and, and, and clocking them a good one. No. Sin and sinfulness and the, and, the, and the infection that is sin. It hurts God. It grieves God. I said this last week, and, I'll, and I will say it again because it, it, it does bear repeating. God cannot simply overlook sinfulness. Number one, it's just not in his nature. And number two, he would not be loving if he did. I don't normally make blanket statements about parenting because I feel like most of the time it's not what the passage is actually talking about. And it's not what the passage is talking about here today either. But for a little while, psychiatrists or whoever it is that talks that tells told us how to parent our children, we were we were told that we shouldn't. We shouldn't discipline our kids. We shouldn't spank our kids. We shouldn't punish our kids for bad things because, and, and now we're going, well, that was a terrible mistake. Because oftentimes the reason why we discipline our children, and, and I'll be honest here, I, we do spank our children. I, I'm not telling you that you have to spank your kids. That's not what I'm trying to say. But there should be discipline in your in your in the lives of your children. The, the Bible actually tells us that pretty pretty forcefully. What it looks like maybe is different. But every every child in here, and we all were children at one point, and every parent in here has, has disciplined their kid and has said, this is going to hurt me more it's going to hurt you. Right? And when you were a kid, you hated that because no prisoner has ever been guilty and deserving of the punishment that they're going to receive. And this is exactly what's happening. This is God's way of saying, this is going to hurt me Way more than it's going to hurt you. I don't want this to be the case. It's God's justice. It's his. It's it's his. It's his love for his creation that demands that he takes action. 
I don't want my kids to grow up to be selfish jerks. And so I try to, to steer them through discipline out of that. Whether I do a good job of that or not is still to be seen, but it's, that's the point of discipline. And when, the, when that is no longer the point of discipline and it becomes, it becomes just an outlet for violence, that's, that's different. That's different. And it's not, really that, it's not really that close of a line. There is a very big difference between discipline and abuse. But here's God, and, 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 and the world has gotten to the point where, and I'm going to repeat this first, the world gets to the point where, where God can say every intention, every intention of the thoughts of man, of the, of the thoughts of his heart is only evil continually. Con, continue, only, every, only, continue. That those, that there's so many words in there. We're not talking about the, we, we've just kind of gotten off track talking about pure and total wickedness everyone and then we read this story and we go god is such a jerk i can't believe he would punish man for for being bad that's not what the bible tells us god is not punishing man for being bad god is eradicating evil pure and simple evil and he's not happy excited, joyful about it. In fact, it crushes God to have to do it. But also, we very much forget the very next thing that happens. Verse 8, it says, and God, but God found favor, or excuse me, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Who's Noah? Quite frankly, I don't think Noah's anything all that special. When he gets out of the ark, he immediately sins. It's really quite sad. This is God's action, not Noah's. Sinfulness has gone unchecked and has, and has infested itself into every aspect of life, every area of life, and God says, okay, now it's time for me to do something new. It's time for me to do something new. Look what he does. Verse 9. I'll actually read here for a little bit. It says, These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. That doesn't necessarily mean that Noah was sinless. It just means that he was different. Noah walked with God. That's what makes him different. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt. There it is again. The earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And, and God saw that the earth, and God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. I don't know if you heard that, but there's three instances of corrupt. Corrupt, corrupt, corrupt. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh of the earth, for, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. No cheering? Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length, 
of the ark, 300 cubits in breadth and 50 cubits in its height and 30 cubits. Make, make a roof for the ark and finish it, finish it to uh, a cubit above and, and set the door of the ark on its, in its side and make it with lower, second, and third decks. And behold, for behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all the flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, and your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And for and, and of every living thing, of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, and of every creeping thing on the, of the ground according to its kind, and two of every beast, two of every sort shall come in to you to keep them alive. Also, take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store, and store it up, which shall serve as food for you and for them. And Noah did this, and he did all that God had commanded him. Isn't that incredible? I think I think it's 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 a mistake to think that the God of the Old Testament is a God of violence and wrath and anger. I really don't think that's what the Bible teaches us. I think again, I think most of the time when we read the Old Testament. We read it and we realize our place as sinners. And we see the ramifications of sin coming to people in the Old Testament. And we think, oh, I'm not guilty. I'm not guilty. I'm not guilty. But we know that we are. Every intention of the thought of man was only evil continually isn't passive. Justice is demanded because of God's just nature. But God is still the God of redemption. And he saves his creation. He saves his creation by, by interjecting himself and giving path to redemption. If you're starting to think, man, this is sounding familiar, you're getting it. He sends, he sends this ark into the earth and sometimes we look at this story and go, what, what, what about all the other people? Didn't God give them an opportunity? We're told in, I think, Peter, I think it's first Peter, first or second Peter. Peter tells us that Noah is the herald of God's righteousness. So he's, he's telling the people, repent, come, come. God will save you. God will save you. Come into the ark. God will save you. And nobody does. Nobody comes in. It's exactly the same thing that we do as Christians. God has saved you. God has saved you. God has saved you. Come into the ark of the blood of Christ Jesus. God is a God who, who redeems, who rescues, who saves. I'm told that this is there's going to be an, a covenant established and we're going to touch on the covenants as we go through, um, go up to Easter. We're not going to really focus on them necessarily, but we're going to see them throughout our, our time. 
this is what we call the Noadic covenant, and we're told we're not going to look at it specifically. But the Noadic covenant is the covenant that God makes with Noah as he comes out of the ark. He puts a rainbow in the sky and he tells Noah, "I will never again destroy the earth like this." And and we kind of miss that. Um, we kind of miss the the main point. <laughs> it's never again will I destroy the earth like this because of the sinfulness of man. When we look to the future as we continue to develop through this story of redemption, we're going to see a lot of sin. We are sinners. And what we learn in Genesis 3, 4, 5, and 6 is that we in ourselves are completely incapable. And we will oftentimes wonder, as we look around at this world and we see the sinfulness of man, we'll often wonder, why has God not done something like that again? But let me venture to say something. He has. Not the destruction, because that's not the point. But the salvation. The story of the of the ark and Jesus are so similar that it's it's really not surprising because that's what the whole Bible te- teaches us. Pretty amazing. In the very very beginning, God has been working this plan, has been has been preparing our hearts, has been preparing mankind, and has been redeeming and saving. Not because we've cleaned ourselves up, but because without his action, we'd be much, much worse. God is a God primarily of redemption. Father, I'd be foolish to not make the goodness of your gospel plainly known. The while that it is of incredible importance that we know and understand that we are sinners, its importance is only in revealing to us and showing to us our need for you. Lord, we thank you that because of your love, because of your grace, you sent your son, Jesus, to die on a cross to take upon himself the waves and the destruction of the earth, to freely, of his own accord, take them on his own shoulders so that we might be saved through it. That all our failings, all our sins, All that we are by our broken natures 
none of this. None of this can keep us from you because of his work. Lord, I pray that the truth and the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ would embed itself into the hearts of those who still don't know you as their Savior. And that they would turn to you now and receive his work for them. Step into the ark of his death and resurrection of the cross and be saved from the torrent of justice. Of justice. Jesus' precious name, His holy name.